Welcome to Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth, a show about markets, investing, and financial planning. Join us as we cover current events that are in the news and answer top of mind questions from our listeners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. This audio may contain statements that may be deemed as forward-looking. Any such statements are not guarantees of future performance and actual results may differ from those projected. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, tax, or other professional services. Welcome to episode 15 of Top of Mind with Concilia Wealth. We are back once again to discuss an update on markets. Markets have actually opened up this year. Um, for context, it's, it's January 31st. So we've got the last day of January. We've got a positive rate of return so far this year. So how and I thought we would discuss that as well as sort of what happened in the back half of last year and some other interesting things. Housing seems to be showing life, signs of life. Um, International is performing pretty well. So we have a range of topics to discuss today. So how, let me turn it over to you. How are things? It's great to see you. Great. Good seeing you. And I think um, people are listening to us and thought we took a two week sabbatical. Um, it's just, it's just a publishing thing on our end. So you'll see two episodes drop. Uh, thankfully, since our last episode, things haven't really changed. But if you listen to these back to back, I think it would make a lot of sense because we're going to touch, retouch on a lot of those topics. But things are going good. Uh, strong rally to start the year. And we'll talk about that. And we'll talk about uh, what investors should do and how they should think about it. So let's start right there. So, you know, we had a question here in the deck. Is this a bear market rally? Does it even matter? What's your thought? Uh, ultimately, whether it's a real tried and true rally, um, if you're sitting on cash, yeah, that's that's probably the time to worry. We'll, we'll get into the, the, the fear of missing out and how that ends up being pretty bad for investors as well, right? Mm -hmm. See mm -hmm. 2020, see 2021. And... I think any kind of rally, there's going to be people putting labels on it that say it's going to be for real this time. This is fake. Watch out. You're going to lose money again. Mm -hmm. That's what market volatility does. It's the markets move down and they move up, though. Um, that's that's volatility. Right. So when something moves exclusively down, you simply run out of sellers. Um, if something moves, you know, nowhere but up you're going to run out of buyers and those, those two sides really correct themselves or revert to their means, whatever that mean is, or the averages. I think there's always this flow, this balance of the market correcting itself, right? If, if it's mm -hmm. oversold, it's going to rebound. So if we look back in December of last year, maybe that was an oversold situation. And this is a, you know, coming back to reality and we'll, we oversold growth companies, for example, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, should they be worth what they're worth, right? Or am I buying something cheaper? And that's mm -hmm. what the market's always trying to discover by by these fluctuations. Mm -hmm. So, and for context, we don't have, again, it's December, December. It's January 31st, so we don't have January numbers, but it looks like the market will finish up about 6% in January. Is that the US right? market, yeah. U.S. market, I should say. Yeah, yeah. we'll get in the international market that a lot of people might be ignoring right now. Yeah, so so the U.S. market's bounced and the international market has bounced more. Yes. That's interesting. Not just recently, too. It's We're talking about the last year, um, surprisingly to me and probably to our listeners, is international and emerging markets have actually beaten the u.s markets pretty by a pretty wide margin so we're mm -hmm. going back 12 months so it's not like this you know short week-long rally it's it's been it's been going on for a while but everyone is so um home biased meaning a lot of their portfolios are u.s-based companies that they would probably didn't even notice mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i posted this on linkedin the other day but for the first time in many 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 years the a diversified portfolio is doing better than the S and P 500. And I know that all of us refer to the S and P as kind of, kind of the, the standard. And, and those of you that have heard me say this before, I always say the standard of pores is a poor standard. Don't benchmark your whole life to it, but it's because you just don't want to stare at that one 
one index of 500 companies in the U.S. and say this is this should be what we should do. You know, historically speaking, smaller companies should do better than giant companies. It just hasn't really happened in the last number of years. So, but we're starting to see that now when you look at like a one-year trailing 12-month performance, you're seeing that diversification has in fact reduced risk and actually performed better. And that's why we do it, of course, but that's a good sign. Yeah, yeah. So going back to the bear market rally, whether what kind of label it is, um, you know, I, I would throw it back to you, Chris, where what would you say to a client who is worried about this being like a false rally or a false start? Yeah, I mean, it's, you never know. You never know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if, if we were to get our tea leaves out, which clients will ask us from time to time, like, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, all the time, yeah. What do you think the market's going to do? And, you know, I, I probably said this in a prior episode, I would guess that the second half of this year is likely a little bit more clear than the first half of this year, just because throughout the first half of this year, you know, hopefully we can get some clarity on interest rates. Hopefully we can get some clarity on jobs. Hopefully we can finally get through this recession or not, if we're actually going to get there or not. And that then as the market becomes more certain, prices then should start to float upward. Um, because of the, that confidence markets hate uncertainty. And oftentimes the uncertainty is what causes sell-offs. And then if yep. the certainty shows up in the form of a less bad earnings report, then stocks actually go up in that sense. So that would be our tea leave reading of the, of the whole market. But the thing is, if you followed that, what that statement to a T and you said, okay, great, I'm just going to start investing in the second half of the year, you might have lost yeah. the greatest rally. Uh, October to November, so that two-month period last year was the, I believe it was the 13th best rally on history, in history. And if you're not investing or waiting around, you miss that type of thing. So what I would tell to a client is you just have to stay level-headed and you have to stay and you have to stay diversified um, because we know that long-term, that's what will ultimately yield strong returns. And when we don't think about it, that's when the market does in fact jump and we need those we need those returns in order to create that good long-term performance that we're all looking for. Yeah, we, we call it climbing the wall of worry. There's always some kind of doubt for every rally. And we go back to 2009, right? Mm-hmm. And if you looked back at the performance, long-term performance since then, any rally was had plenty of detractors and doubters. Um, famously, Jeremy Grantham, who is a respected economist slash investor, he's been calling for a for a recession or a stock market crash since 2011. Imagine if you listened to his advice, you would have been out of the market what 13 years at this point. That's just not good good advice to act on. Um, for context, though, anyone calling for these. Things are either trying to make a name for themselves, but they're most likely still invested. They're not selling out mm-hmm. and they're getting mm-hmm. hashing out this advice. Um, a lot of it should come with a disclaimer, but um, I'd be super leery about anyone who who says to the moon for sure. But just as doubly worried about people who like Robert Kiyosaki, who's always calling for recession and gold's going to win the day. Mm-hmm. And if you've listened in gold in the last five, six, seven years, it's it's actually been lagging the S&P by, you know, 10, 10 fold, 20 fold. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm throwing out generic numbers, but um, investing in something that, you know, is based on betting against the U.S. economy has always been a losing bet. Mm-hmm. Even even post-recession, it's been a losing bet. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about how sort of the psychology behind this, right? Markets start going up and now I want to buy because things seem to be getting, yeah, getting better. Yeah. And you know, and then you start to have this this FOMO, right? Ah, I missed it. I got to get in now. Let's break that down a little bit for the all the market watchers out there. Yeah, yeah. FOMO is a real thing. And it got people in the markets, right? We saw a lot of FOMO coming in to the markets where I, I got my nephew or my niece saying they... They quadrupled their money on GameStop and it's going to the moon and it's a winning bet in or crypto or uh, SPACs, you name it. It I think it comes in cycles where the, the, the fever pitch of greed definitely explodes. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say it's like every seven years or so that happens where, you know, the previous generation or the 
the current generation of investors seemingly forgets about the past, even just for a little bit. There's like this this push for speculative growth, right? And yes, there's a place ramp, but it has to be scaled down properly. Uh, who cares what your your waitress at the restaurant made on GameStop or AMC? Who cares, right? No, everyone loves talking about their wins. They rarely brag about their losses. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this is a industry that has a way of humbling people, right? And even the best investors have big, big dips or periods where they just are so out of favor or their investments are so out of favor that, you know, they end up looking like losers. They lose clients over this. They lose performance over this. And I think the fear of missing out, it has to go back to being level-headed, like you said earlier, Chris. It's just you can't let emotions come into it where you think the stock market is a lottery ticket waiting to explode for you. Look at Warren Buffett. I think the greatest example yeah. of what you just said is look at Warren Buffett over these last number of years. There's been so many people that have come out and thrown darts at him and how he's old and he doesn't understand markets anymore and you know his, his strategy's out of date and blah, 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 blah. And now you look at last year, a year where his investment strategy did incredibly well relative to yeah. uh, everybody yeah. who was throwing darts at him. And you know, I think the, the hardest part of investing is not, is not changing your strategy in the face of what's top of media. And that's something that Warren has done so well. Yeah. And you know, how you would comment on this. Well, Morgan Housel has a fantastic book called the psychology of money. Yeah. Yeah. And he comments on how Warren Buffett is a, he, he's a great investor. He's not the best investor of all time in terms of his return. He's got a good return, but the secret to his wealth is that he started very early and he's done it a long time. Well, he stayed invested for, yeah. He stayed invested. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so I think that's the hard part, right? When the, when the hottest fund or the hottest stock or whatever, and we all want to go buy that, um, a, knowing when to sell that thing, if you happen to own that thing and you have a big gain on it, but B, maybe just not even buying it to begin with or trying to stay out of it. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. It is. It is. Yeah. My last whole last year, I actually did not sell anything. It was all buying, mm-hmm. but I'm in an accumulation phase. It's, but buying in the, at any point last year did not feel good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In this market, you might feel better. But why do you need market movement movements up to feel good about your purchases? It just yeah. it should be the opposite of the way around because all the all the big deals were occurring in September, December, right, of last year where the market did touch its lows and buying low is probably the simplest thing to say, but the hardest thing to execute in practice. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, in sum, if you don't want to have FOMO, stay diversified because then you won't have to worry about missing the next hottest thing or losing to the next hottest yeah. thing because you'll just own a little bit of all of it and it and it and it goes the right direction over long periods of time. Well, the opposite of FOMO is the buyer's remorse, right? So people are hesitant to buy because they're afraid of an uh, impending crash or Clip a in correction. The peak. Yeah. yeah. So that's equally as dangerous because you're sitting on cash. Granted, cash is earning really healthy amounts, but that's not going to be forever. We all know that the Fed will eventually lower rates because an overnight rate of four and a half percent, meaning um, that's what the banks borrow at. Mm -hmm. If they have to borrow at four and a half percent and they can only loan out mortgages that are 5%, they're not making money. Mm -hmm. And if banks aren't circulating money, then the economy does ground to a halt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really the mechanics of, uh, in the industry, we call the inverted yield curve. Because banks borrow short and they lend long, but if they lend long and there's no yield to get from from, you know, their costs and their expenses, they're not going to lend out money. That doesn't make sense for a bank to operate that way. Mm-hmm. So if enough banks do that, that's going to slow the economy because people mm-hmm. money isn't circulating. Okay, so what's causing the rally? 
Uh, more buyers than sellers. I know I keep saying that. <laughs> I keep saying that. Okay, but so that's really the... An, this is an internal yeah, thing. I have to pivot here. So every time, you know, let's say there's a big market sell-off. And <laughs> I always ping Hal and a couple of other people on the team. Hal, what happened today? And Hal will just go, well, there's more sellers than buyers. It's like, give me more than that. There's got to be more than that. What was announced? <laughs> so I guess it yeah, is that well, simple. Yeah, what was announced? Uh, believe it or not, not a lot has been announced other than... You know, we're, we're having earnings that are pretty middling to average. Um, uh, we're in the midst of earnings season. So as Chris mentioned, we're at the last day of January. It's 10 a.m. Pacific, and we're, we're awaiting Amazon. We just got Tesla. Uh, we got <clears throat> Microsoft. We got these big earnings reports coming out, mm-hmm. and they were pretty blah, right? And there wasn't huge um, disappointments, or there weren't huge surprises to the, to the upside. So this rally, um, which that's what we're calling it, um, could be based on speculation. So the naysayers could be right, but how right can they be? And at one point, will they be right? And well, let's say they're right, but it doesn't happen until next year. Mm-hmm. That's a year's worth of compounding that you're missing out. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I'm answering with a non-answer because there's no real, um, there's no real fact here that that's showing that we should be rallying. Other than there might be a ton of cash on the sideline that had been building up all last year, mm-hmm. that's finally saying we got to get back in. Um, it could be a short covering, meaning uh, going back to the GameStop days when there are so many short sellers and there were enough buying activity to spark this short covering, meaning if you're a short seller, you eventually need to close your position out by buying more shares of the, the, of the asset that you're shorting. And that creates buying pressure. So you look at names like Tesla. Carvana. Yeah. Yeah. Carvana was huge, right? 35% Um, a day or something like that because of all the short covering. Yeah. So these, these, uh, meme, Investors are buying a lot of options, and that's that's basically leveraging the amount of buying coverage that you need. Because if you're the clearinghouse, you need to cover the clearinghouse is full of market makers that cover the options. So an option is just the right to gains or losses on a on a hundred shares of an underlying stock, right? So using was it Bed Bath Beyond or Carvana mm-hmm. uh, have experienced this where they have very poor businesses, especially Carvana. They're probably going to be out of business pretty soon. They haven't officially declared bankruptcy. So that attracts a lot of people who are looking to cash in for that stock to go down to zero. Mm -hmm. Right. So if I'm shorting a stock, let's say I short it at $10, I want it to go down to zero so I could profit $10. Mm -hmm. So what these meme guys are really caught on was we can make Hal's life as a short seller, really painful mm-hmm. by applying a lot of buying pressure. You can buy it. You can apply a lot of buying pressure more so using options because instead of one share, you're buying 100 shares, and that really increases the amount of buying on the back end. Because that's because one contract is equivalent of 100 shares. Correct, and that contract does need to be backed by 100 shares eventually. Mm-hmm. So if you buy enough of those. Someone at the market market maker side does have to come up with those shares. Mm-hmm. And if the shorts are covering, those market makers are covering, that's a lot of buying pressure. I think we saw it with Tesla the last two, few few days after Tesla reported earnings. Um, yeah, yeah. They lowered the prices and they shouldn't. That's something hasn't traditionally been celebrated in uh, Wall Street where you lose, you know, you lose market share and you have to lower prices to regain some of that back. Your margins go way down and investors don't like that, but they, but we saw a Tesla rally, pretty strong rally in the last few days. That's, I think that's because a lot of the retail strength. Tesla has been an interesting one too, because last year was obviously not a great year for Tesla stock price yet more money went into the stock than many other stocks. I, I, I don't know the exact quotes, but I remember reading 
multiple posts on this saying, you know, despite poor returns on that stock, retail investors are just buying and buying and buying and buying and buying. So you talk about more buyers than sellers. I suppose in that case, it just wasn't enough. Yeah. Uh, and there's some people that would say, well, hey, you know, Elon sold billions and billions of dollars, but not enough to move the needle. I mean, it's just not, it's like Bezos selling a couple of billion dollars a year. It's just not enough to move the needle in yeah. Amazon stocks. These are huge companies we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think it's too big for any one seller, as big as, even as big as Elon. But mm -hmm. um, he created a lot of drama. And I think that scared maybe some sellers. It's got to be a factor, right? It's got to yeah, be. Yeah. Yeah. But now that, from what I hear, I haven't heard a lot of Twitter news lately. So that could, yeah. that could be enough. But if you ever met a Tesla owner, they're a little, they drink the Kool-Aid. No offense yeah. to Tesla owners, but they, and no, Tesla well, stock owners too, are a little, a little wacko for the company. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's like iPhone owners, right? I mean, it's, it's a, it's a product <laughs> yeah. and it's a, it's a status symbol and, and Apple's created this yeah. brand that is, uh, I believe the most profitable product ever. And it's the iPhone. And, you know, how do you do that? Right. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they've been, you talk about inflation. I think the first iPhone was like $200 and they've been able to increase that, what, sevenfold to today's model of iPhone. And of course they've packed more features in, yep. but you know, the, the, the cost of other phones have more or less gone down. So, you know, how do, how do they do that? How do they create a brand and, you know, their, their Apple stores and all these other things. And so, you know, a lot of people have said Tesla is sort of the, the Apple of cars and it, it's a very, is, very yeah. unique yeah. brand. Yeah. It's a following. Even the stock owners tell, tell a Tesla stock owner that it's, we don't think it's the best stock to own at the moment. <laughs> You're in for a whirlwind of arguments that, yeah, they'll that defend don't it. really, yeah, are, yeah, aren't really founded. So, okay. So here's my theory on what's causing the rally because I'm, I'm not as, as, as simple as there's more buyers than sellers. I think that the market is starting to digest current economic data and they're starting to think that we are closer to the end of the tunnel than the middle or the beginning. Markets don't trend down forever, right? And that as earnings have come out, you said, hey, they've been kind of lackluster, but I think lackluster is actually good because so we've seen in history, sometimes a stock will get just beaten up. Netflix has been one of them, right? And then they come out with an earnings report that's kind of bad, but it was less bad than what was predicted. And the stock actually yeah. went up yeah. in the face of a bad earnings report. And so my theory is that I think that earnings has been less bad. And in part that's contributed to, hey, we're probably getting through this. I don't know what this is, but we're getting through this. And so, you know, stocks have floated up a little bit because of that. Yeah, it'd be, it's like being kicked in the teeth and you, you feel for, for your uh, remaining teeth. You, you see you have two instead of none. Like you, you, <laughs> you kind of, so it, so this, this is a good way to describe the, this current rally where um, inflation is coming down. I, I think that's one of the biggest fundamental bright spots where it's continually going down month over month, year over year, however you want to slice and dice it. And inflation is yeah. coming down. Yeah, it is. And yeah, at the end of the tunnel, Chris is mentioning is probably the rate hiking cycle that the mm -hmm. market's looking ahead. We know we're we're in for maybe two more hikes, and that's all that's currently priced in. Mm -hmm. But the market will not wait for that second hike to be to start. It's not mm -hmm. like this race we're waiting for a, a starter to shoot shoot the gun, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because the market does not wait. It's gonna. Everyone's trying to get ahead of everyone else, and we get this weird rallies at points where where nothing feels good. But I think what the point is, everyone's saying, everyone who's invested is, is saying, "Well, it can't get worse, so we're we're just, we're just going to buy now and ride it out." Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That could be that could be a very true thing. That could be it. Yeah. I mean, hey, if markets are flat for the rest of the entire year, you got a pretty great good year. return. Really great year. Really yeah. great year. And I know that doesn't sound very exciting, but that would actually be perfectly fine. Perfectly, perfectly <laughs> fine. So, yeah. and that's why it's important to own equities and, and own stocks and own diversification because to your earlier comments, you can earn, I was seeing this the other day, you can earn 4.7% in a one year CD right now. That's killer. But you can earn 4.7% in a month, a week yeah, 
or a month yeah. in the markets. And that's not suggesting that you should be in and then be out after that period, because of course you need some years that go to 20% in order to gain a, a good long-term return, because there will be some years that lose about 15, like last year. But um, it's just it, it, it's just interesting to contrast uh, those two things. You know, the risk-free rate effectively, 4.7% on a one-year CD feels good, but stocks long-term should still do better than that and interest rates should likely yeah, for sure. come back down a little bit. Yeah. Okay, and other interesting news, the housing market is showing signs of life. After being kind of locked, places would sit for a while. And, and I guess I say that is really just a reflection of the last couple of years where you'd list and sell in a weekend. And, you know, that is, let's let's all be, be reminded that that is not normal. It is not normal <laughs> to have yeah. such liquidity on your house. Um, not healthy, not normal, not good. But now we're going back to a little bit swinging towards normal and uh, likely due to interest rates. Interest rates have spiked and, and buyers have, have sort of sat back on the sidelines. But interestingly enough, buyers have started to come back. And uh, if I'm looking here at this, I have this chart up of um, interest rates and interest rates have, uh, they peaked around 7%. And this was back in, this is for mortgages, by the way. So they peaked at around 7% back in November and they started to tail down since then. And they're right now sitting around five and a half to six ish. And so that's seems to have brought some buyers back. I think more than anything, it's just the stability you know, for context, if we look at a year ago, a year ago, it was three and a half percent on a 30 year fixed mortgage. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then by, by May, it was five and a half by June, it was almost six and then finally came down. And then, you know, by, by October, November, it was seven. And so I think just having some stability over the last couple of months around that five to six ish range, I think that's actually said, all right, you know, maybe this isn't as bad as, as, you know, as, as, as it was. Uh, and I, I still continue to think when, you know, if, and when rates tick below five and it has a four in front of it, I think the market starts to go nuts again. Could be wrong, but I feel like there's good likelihood of that happening. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something the fed will watch out for is um, that's a, good point. a return to nuttiness in the housing market. Cause Housing is such a big part of our economy, right? Mm -hmm. if, if I build a new home, I'm going to have this domino effect where I'm buying appliances, I'm adding utilities, I'm adding so many things that are um, adding to our economy, right? And I think that does need to slow down. It has slowed down, but I think there's a f really high floor to that because there's not enough homes, right? Post, yeah, yeah, post housing recession, we we had a really slow build out in single family homes and apartments. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the, after 10 years, you just don't catch up. Mm -hmm. Right. And right now we're, we're feeling it. Mm -hmm. right? it's, I've talked about windows being six months delayed and some homes are being sold without windows. They're just boarded up until the windows come in. Uh, that's a pretty common practice for a lot of builders right now because supply has always been kind of steady mm -hmm. because building has always been slow and steady because no one wants to own plots of land heading into a recession. Mm -hmm. And I think what home, home builders are doing now is pretty, pretty creative, pretty inventive. I don't know if they'll run into a 2008 level of pullback. It, I just don't see that kind of irresponsibility in mortgage lending right now. So recession or not, I think housing does have a high floor simply because one supply is so low. And there's more buyers than sellers at this point, right? Like there's a lot more people who are needing a home, regardless of interest rates. It's a matter of affordability. Mm -hmm. uh, when you say four and a half percent, I think that's a good steady level that we've experienced what in the 2010s, mm -hmm. that the housing market didn't go hog wild. And I think anything below three is just asking for, you know, reinflation. And oh, below three on, on mortgage rates? Yeah, on mortgage rates. Which oh my I, God, it's going to go yeah, nuts. Yeah, I doubt that. Happen, I don't know if we'll but... ever see below three in our lifetime. No. I mean, I'd I, be I shocked. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, refinancing, you know, activity has slowed down. And that actually 
slow down people pulling equity out of their homes to buy on buy jet skis, buy cars. And yeah, yeah. That's a there, there's a real slowdown in in spending, and I think uh, housing is a big component of that. In Dr. Horton, so Dr. Horton is a is a major home builder. One of them. There's there's many of them that are national. They came out with earnings here recently, and they have signaled. I'm just reading a quote here. So they've signaled that they plan to increase their housing starts this spring in anticipation of more buyer demand. And how you and I are talking about this earlier about what home builders were doing really in the last six to nine months, maybe 12 months to try to spur demand on the projects that came online. Yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I'm not going to say the company, um, but I ran into someone who I met at a New Year's party who worked for a home builder in California Mm. and they were buying chunks of loans to loan back out to potential home buyers. And -hmm. what they're doing is using those, basically the bulk discounts. So if I'm a home builder, I buy $10 million worth of loans. I can get a bulk discount. I I didn't know you could do this, like buying Hmm. amounts of money, like you're, you're at a Costco, right? Buying a jug of mayonnaise, the the more you buy, the the less cost it becomes. Yeah. So you get passed along some of those savings to the, the customers. Um, on top of that, they've gotten creative. Instead of lowering the home prices, they've been buying down points on behalf of the customer. I have read so that, about that. So, so if you bought a home in a you know new, new development and you're locked in, the last thing as a builder I can do or should do is lower price for the next buyer because mm-hmm. you, being the first buyer, are suddenly just really pissed off at me mm-hmm. and are demanding some kind of rebate or refund, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really creative way to – to artificially bring down mortgage rates because they don't have to keep doing it if demand comes back. So if mortgage rates were 6%, they could buy buy down the points and get you a 4.5%, 5% mortgage without lowering the price. And I think, I think that's been, in this market, very successful for home builders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, it's the biggest hurdle to getting to a home right now is the payment. And yeah. so if the builder comes in and says, all right, we'll, we'll buy your points and, and, you know, meaning we'll buy your loan rate down out of the 6% range or 7% range or whatever it was at the time and lock it in at five, that dramatically makes the payment yeah. more affordable. And then they can sell the house. And the cost of doing that is so much less than the cost of lowering the price of the house. And you want to support your comps with all the surrounding areas. Because if you yes. sold one house for five hundred thousand, and the next house you sell for four sixty, that's a problem. But if you can Big sell problem. both of them for five hundred thousand, but just yeah. behind the scenes kick in some money to make the next one more affordable, you you support your comp and you support that neighborhood, which keeps everybody happy too. Yeah, yeah. So that's not necessarily. That. It's it's just a little bit of behind the scenes. Builders do this all the time, where they want to yeah. support yeah. their price and they'll give people hundred thousand dollar credit, you know, and all this stuff because they want to keep their comps up. Um, it does provide a uh, upward momentum in the market, which uh, transparently I don't think is necessarily fair. Yeah, but it happens, so I think it's just worth knowing about. Yeah, well, if you're a homeowner, I actually don't didn't not care whether the home price has moved up or down because we no intention of moving. Yeah, but long term. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, I totally understand anyone who's bought a house and all of a sudden they're trying to sell the house. That same model or floor plan for 20% cheaper. That's, that's Mm -hmm. definitely not fair. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, we got to get out of the mindset that looking at houses as, as stocks, right. Looking for, looking at Zillow to always see the price move up and down. That's one, not healthy. Mm -hmm. I was reading here as well, that some markets have actually seen the return of bidding wars and, uh, this article here, this is a Puget Sound Business Journal article that I'm that I'm looking at here that actually came out this morning. And it says that Seattle, Tampa, Florida are two of the markets that have come back uh, with bidding wars, believe it or not. Haven't actually heard about that in the Seattle area, but so this is the first I've heard of this. And also in the Twin Cities over in Minnesota, they've seen bidding wars uh, as, as well. Almost every day their you know, agents are, are reporting this. So pretty interesting. I think this year will be a really interesting year in housing, particularly if we do, in fact, see rates come down. You also had a a news report hit from Goldman Sachs that 
you know, they said, well, these four markets are going to totally tank this year and they're way overpriced. Uh, one of them was Seattle. One of them was Phoenix. Um, one of them was Austin. And the last one I believe was San Francisco. Um, and so we'll see, right? I mean, these are major calls as, as our listeners know, how and I always decipher the headlines and say, eh, it probably won't happen. We don't know. No one knows, but, yeah. um, generally speaking, when you make a major, major call like that, um, you know, what's the quote? Things are never as good or bad as they seem. Let's go with that. Yeah. We're going to live and die by housing. If it rebounds very strongly, that that's going to spur a lot of spending. And I mentioned before, like home equities, uh, appliances, things that go into a brand new home, right? That's, that's all spending that we probably don't want at the very moment. Mm-hmm. As long, as long as, we, unless we could get, um, Inflation in check. Sorry, I was coughing there. And speaking of inflation, you had some notes on this here too. So inflation continues a downward trend, which is good. Seems to be kind of spiking in pockets. I'm happy to report that cauliflower was on sale the last time <laughs> I was at the store. So it still had its stated price. I think it was like four ninety nine, which is still crazy to me, but then it was on sale twice. And I think I bought a, a head of cauliflower for like 350 or 360. So I felt really good about that. First time I went to the store, I sent how a text because they were <laughs> sold out. And I was like, man, I really want to buy some. And they were sold out. But then the second time they were restocked and I, I, I grabbed one. So, so that's good. That's good. news. Yeah. yeah the, the last episode that I'll probably publish right ahead of this episode was, um, we talked about how ASA spiked and we yeah. kind of poked fun at it because yeah, um, <clears throat> no matter how expensive eggs get, there, there's there were still relatively low dollar amount to people's pocketbooks, mm-hmm. but you, people are buying eggs more often than cars or washers and jars, right? So mm-hmm. the sting is definitely there because, <laughs> unironically, I guess uh, my wife went and bought sixty eggs mm-hmm. for my daughter's <clears throat> like baking birthday. Um, that costs sixty eggs, or a pallet of eggs costs sixty dollars. I don't know how many eggs are in a pallet, but to buck an egg, no way. Yeah, <laughs> no, got, no, it wasn't. It's got to be more than sixty eggs. But I don't know what <laughs> eggs you're buying, man. But I'm not buying dollar eggs. Yeah, whatever the pallet was. So a few, <laughs> I mean, it was. I'm pretty sure it was a few dollar dozen. It was sixty bucks, and yeah, yeah, it <clears throat> that stung. So like a bit of a um, slap in the face for what we said on the last <laughs> last episode. But it's kind of like, yeah. it's kind of like what you said last time you said eggs, the inflation in eggs, people don't see because it might be 50 cents or a dollar, but inflation in gas prices you see because you drop, you know, somewhere between 50 and you know maybe $120 mm-hmm. on a tank of gas, depending on what you drive. So you feel it so much more when it goes up 10 or 20%, but you don't feel eggs. So you just experienced the gas, the gas equivalent yeah. of egg inflation because you bought six times as many eggs <laughs> as you normally buy yeah. and it totally hit your pocketbook. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think anyone should pay double digits for eggs unless, again, I mentioned whether you're a, bo- <laughs> if you're a bodybuilder or a baker. So, <laughs> one of those two. I'm neither. My wife's a baker. So, um, yeah, we felt half of it. You said gas is coming back up. I actually haven't noticed this. And so I guess maybe I haven't filled up recently, but gas is coming back up. This is news to me. Yeah. Yeah. CNN took advantage of you know, um, slow news week and gas prices are surging because, um, a bit of cold spells across the refinery sites have uh, slowed down production. Mm. But on top of that, um, we, we just have a pattern of big gas companies, Exxon, right. Uh, posted $56 billion in profit, Chevron, $72 billion, $72 billion buyback. Um, <clears throat> They're raking in the cash, but they're really not doing anything to modernize their production. Mm-hmm. Uh, BP came out and said the market's going to completely shift in 2050 from gas, and that's going to be like the stop, uh, the <clears throat> dead stop date, where it's either whatever the new form of fuel is, hydrogen, electricity, um, alternative fuels, that in 30 years, no one's going to gas companies won't exist mm-hmm. in their current form. So why would you invest in modernizing something that everyone is so opposed to? Mm-hmm. Or at the same time, you could modernize and reduce costs, reduce emissions, 
with all these big windfalls instead of doing buybacks. I think that, yeah. So I, th- I don't think gas companies are really doing themselves any favors, but at the same time, they've been, you know, seeing a gradual decline for the last 30, 40 years, right? They are the bad be- guy here. Yeah. Is that just because they don't have to? Like, if I'm a market they don't have to, that no. has They're a business. lot of competition, yeah, I have to <laughs> invest in things to try to drive down cost or innovate differently, but big oil is kind of all selling the same product. You know, yes, I have my preferred gas stations, but uh, it's all kind of the same product. Yeah, and it's so, commodity. Yeah, right. And so you don't, they don't really, there isn't really the incentive to say, well, we could make our production a little bit more efficient. Nah, efficient compared to what? They're all about the same. Yeah, yeah, because you're spending billions of dollars for something that's probably going to die, whether it's in thirty years, twenty years. Um, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, but. <clears throat> Yeah, they could be shooting themselves in the foot because let's say we'd never back off oil. Now they have a system they created in the 1970s that they're trying to, you know, make operationally sound in the 2050s. We were just talking about oil and uh, total tangent, but you just reminded me. So you remember the news all about um, gas stoves? Like gas oh, stoves yeah, were in the news yeah, yeah. and it was like, gas stoves are going to be outlawed and we can't do, you know, when you're not going to use them anymore. And I'm thinking yeah. like, I have a gas stove. What does this mean? You know, I'm going to have to get rid of it or whatever. And there's all these reports about, Oh, it puts emissions in your house and it leads to respiratory issues. And then you're going to die. And I'm like, really, this doesn't make any sense. And, and in traveling around the country, there are parts of the country that almost exclusively have gas stoves. It's just how yeah. in gas ovens too. Whereas in other parts of the country, it's more like you have an electric oven or electric stove or maybe gas stove, electric oven, whatever. Um, This is a perfect example of how the media blows things up Mm -hmm. to the sense that they make no sense. Because the person that's the head of the review that's reviewing this claim or whatever finally came out. I don't know if he tweeted or whatever. He finally came out and said... I'm not going to ban gas stoves. That's the biggest, that's the most ridiculous thing in the world. All we're doing here is we're reviewing the safety of gas stoves in homes to try to determine, can we improve the safety of them or the emissions of them to potentially make them more efficient over time? We're not even, no, no one's even talking about banning. So that is a, I was reading that and that is a perfect example about how the media blows things out of proportion. And uh, we're all used to seeing it based on, of course, stock market predictions. And that's what we talk about here. But that is a great yeah. example of something non-market. But I know you love cooking. I love cooking. And there's no way I would use an electric stove. There's no you way. You would have to drag that out of my house. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you'd see me like um, those tree tree hugging people who um, handcuff the themselves. Tree hugging to, my, my yeah, gas stove. I, yeah. I'm going to handcuff myself to my stove because that <laughs> thing is not yeah. leaving the house. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't really pay attention to it because I knew it was a bunch of BS. Because, um, yeah, understand your source. I We use tons of sources, um, tons of sources. They're all reputable. Um, I'm talking Facebook, Twitter. <laughs> no. um, Influencers. We, we, yeah. I mean, you know, anything we, that we post is definitely reputable. Yeah. So uh, that's fair. Everything. Everything we post is reputable. But, no, we use stuff that's it's true, actually. That, that doesn't... You know, get published to the public from research shops. So um, none of them have wrote about this BS news story. A lot of BS news stories are out there that uh, CNBC will publish, CNN will publish, uh, sometimes Bloomberg. But yeah, you got to consider your source and stop panicking over little things. Seriously, it's just, you know, it's like the stock market of emotions, I guess. And every little thing will set people on or off. Gas stoves. I'm going to be using that example for years now. <laughs> All right, let's wrap with international. So international is beating the U.S. We talked about this a little bit ago. Should should people shift? What's what should we think? How should we think about international stocks right now? I think uh, addressing FOMO or addressing uh, buyer's remorse, you should have international already in your portfolio as a well balanced portfolio to balance yeah. against a potential U.S. recession and only in the U.S., it can happen. Uh, look at the 80s, right? Japan was kicking everyone's ass in mm-hmm. the 80s, mm-hmm. right? If you were invested only in the U.S., you would have left a lot of gains on the table, mm-hmm. even though the 80s were really good for the U.S. Mm-hmm. US and stock market. So 
yeah, get get rid of the thought of you're going to beat the world market by going U.S. only because the U.S. has been so dominant for the last 20 years. Well, technically, it's only been dominant for the last 13 years because that lost decade from 2000 to 2009, guess who beat the U.S.? That's a a 10-year stretch of missing out. Uh, Now, if you don't have any international, I wouldn't completely swing over. I would be a little bit more modest about it because we want to avoid return chasing as well. Um, Even advisors do this. A lot of old school advisors will look at performance on Morningstar. Yeah. And just pick the best performers regardless of risk or, you know, the, the market environment that caused that outperformance. Um, It's like picking funds in a 401k. You look at the 26 funds, your investment strategy is to pick the ones that did the best in the one, three and five year, put all the money across those four funds and assume that that continues. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Return chasers might've done well in markets like 2020. Do we want another momentum based market in like 2020? Well, not so soon, right? Eventually it'll come. But if you're continually doing that, all you're doing is buying stuff high and selling your losers low. Like that makes no sense, right? Because if you were going to do this, you would actually sell US when it's relatively lagged to buy international and emerging markets when Mm -hmm. it's relatively outperformed. So so, um, we're telling you stuff that you probably should have done, but be more... Yeah, be more modest about it, about, you know, international is not going to always outpace U.S. Yeah, and really what we're saying is just be and stay diversified, right? I mean, I think it's, yeah. it's the, you know, sometimes a client will say, well, how did my how did my portfolio do against the S&P 500? And it's like, well, the portion that is the giant companies in the U.S. did, you know, right about the same as the S&P 500, but then you've got tiny companies in here and you've got international companies, you have bonds, you have some real estate, you know, you have all this stuff, right? And and so, you know, like it, it wouldn't be a, a appropriate uh, comparison to compare, say, Domino's Pizza to Netflix. Like you, yeah. you wouldn't compare those two stocks. Those are totally different stocks. And so, um, or, uh, think about know. a band where there's no drummer, there's no bassist, and they're all playing lead guitar and all singing. That mm-hmm. would be one of the worst bands I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Right. You, you do need other things besides the lead. Mm-hmm. to <laughs> formulate yeah. a band, right? Yeah. Um, well, hopefully let's... hopefully, this is the return of diversification, really really uh, adding some consistent value to portfolios. We know that it adds long-term value, but in the short term, look, it's been hard for investors to say, I'm going to stay with this strategy when this thing over here that's in the news every day, the S&P, is just doing the best. And so, yeah. you know, hopefully this is the return of that. Uh, I will say this, I was recently in competition with another advisor. And um, this advisor was comparing our portfolio solely to the S&P 500. And um, you know, the S&P had done better than a diversified portfolio, <laughs> which includes bonds. Yeah. And, uh, and I was chatting with, with this, this person with that. And I said, I mean, this is kind of the Kind of the oldest trick in the book is to compare a diversified portfolio to a benchmark that's done better than that portfolio and yeah. say that, you know, that's, that's, you know, th- this is why or whatever, yet then the recommended portfolio was very similar to ours. It had international and it had all this diversification in it. It's like, well, why are we benchmarking it against one thing that you're not even recommending anyway? I mean, it's my gripe in our industry is that I think that our industry could sell less and educate more. And uh, I think if we were really talking to people more frankly about their money, it would be less of a, you know, anyway, just horribly inappropriate uh, benchmarking strategy against yeah. that. Well, so. clients, again, that FOMO, it's touching on that FOMO uh, psychology of clients. Where but why would you compare to one thing and then recommend another thing? That's that's not even what anyway, <laughs> I'm still I'm still like, come on, you're better than that. Well, I mentioned old school advisors um, again, not to pick on old advisors. It's just, um, certain advisors that come from a cut from a certain cloth, they could be young too. And they, they take this approach of return chasing and they're investing using the rear view mirror where that's, that's really yeah. dangerous. Yeah. Right. Uh, imagine creating a portfolio in 2021, it's going to be all Kathy Wood stuff in there. Mm-hmm. And that would have been 
really bad for you for the last two years. Mm -hmm. And just because an asset performed poorly doesn't mean it's a poor asset. I, I, I say that a lot because mm -hmm. we always question, why are you holding this? It lost money. Yeah, that's the point. We purposely put things in there that move in different directions than the S&P, for example, mm -hmm. because you don't want an entire portfolio right. running in the same direction as the S&P. That's just... That's so crazy, especially coming off a year in 2022. Are you we seriously looking for concentration risk here? We want to <laughs> diversify. Hey, that's a, so. So if you run into someone giving you financial advice that's that's solely focused in one region or asset type, they're they're return chasing. I could tell you that, mm -hmm. and they're not looking out for your best interest because they don't know what they're doing. They didn't take the time to to properly go through an investment school. Right. And I think, I think it's a, it is a school of hard knocks because you're actually losing money for people. If you do it wrong. Very true. Yeah. All right. Let me close with a fun fact. Uh, after a bad year, which we would consider last year, not a great year, it was a negative year in the market. So the S and P 500 yeah. rebounds 83% of the time by an average of 15% after a bad year like last year. And here's we're why halfway that matters. There already. That's true. <laughs> One month in, we're halfway there. <laughs> Don't quote that. Oh God. <laughs> we're halfway through the recovery. Also on average, we know that the markets pull back 15% any given year. So there will likely be a That's minus normal, yeah. return at some point in this year. On average, every single year that happens and on average, the market finishes positive. So you know what, what that screams to me? Buying opportunity. Anytime there's a 15% pullback. Absolutely. Right. Well, that's we often send the caller for cash yeah. to clients at that point. You, but you say that happens every year. It's always accompanied with bad news. This year, most likely, I'm going to predict it now. It's going to be with re regards to uh, the debt limit drama. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen in the summer. That would be a good buying opportunity. Mm. Interesting. I know we don't hash out advice, but again, that's that's news that's fleeting. Here, here's the point that I want to make. So, 83 percent of the time, the market is average is up following a bad year like last year on average of 15%. Could that be wrong? Well, yeah, yeah. You know, there's a, a chance uh, that the 83% will not be true. Here's why this is important. If you were taking a bet on something, if you were uh, sitting at a casino, you, your odds are so good. Like you would never leave the table if the odds were that good. You would You would continue to invest. So you know, as I like to say, markets don't settle down, they settle up. And the standard and pours is a poor standard. So we'll leave <laughs> you with those two things for, for this episode until next time. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you.